Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Friends, family, visitors, welcome. We are glad you're with us uh, this Sunday morning, this beautiful Sunday morning. The beauty of God's holy mercy is revealed most brilliantly in Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest. The beauty of God's holy mercy is revealed most brilliantly in Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest. More than anything else in all the world, that's what you long for, to see and gaze upon the beauty of God in Christ. You long for and you're, you're pleading in your soul, you're built in your soul to, as the psalmist says in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Brothers and sisters, do you sense your longing to see him? Do you sense in you a longing to gaze upon his beauty? To delight in him, the creator and redeemer of your soul. That is what you were made for. That's what you were redeemed for. And in Christ, that's what you're guaranteed to enjoy forevermore. Non-Christian friends, even who might be here. Thank you for being here. This is a safe place for you to consider what you were made for. Better still, who you were made for. Namely, God in Christ. This week, in some ways, is part two to the message our friend Nate Aiken preached last week about the tabernacle. That portable place where God means to dwell with his people. Nate covered Exodus 25 to 27. Today, Lord willing, we will attempt to cover chapters 28 through 31. Yes, 28 through 31, buckle up. We'll talk mainly about the priests that ministered in the temple or in the tabernacle. We'll talk about the sacred garments that they had to wear. The cleansing and anointing ceremonies they had to go through. The sacrifices they had to offer and the Sabbath rest they had to observe. You know, stuff that's immediately easy to understand and clearly apply in your life this week. In all seriousness, you may have never heard a sermon on this text. I know I've never preached one and that I've put more hours trying to get my head around these four chapters in such a way that it would be profitable to teach you from them. But I believe the main application of this text for you is the most important and life-altering application there is. Namely, that you would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. That you would leave today more astounded by the brilliant, holy mercy of God than when you walked in here. And if you leave doing that, I believe you will leave differently, living differently, including this week. Now, I want to attempt to teach these chapters by first considering the shadow and then the substance of each point. What I mean by that, Colossians 2.17, referring to the Old Covenant regulations, said that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So I want you, as it were, to picture yourself facing the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. I want you to imagine seeing the whole thing spread out before you in about a thousand pages. Most Old Testaments are around about a thousand pages. And I want you to think you're looking at this Old Covenant, a thousand pages all spread out, and behind you there's such a bright light, and then there's a shadow being cast, a cross shadow being cast over the Old Testament, all of these pages. So you see the pages and you see this massive shadow of this massive cross on these pages. And then I want you to imagine turning around to see the substance that's creating that shadow, the substance that makes up that cross, to see the beauty of God's holy mercy revealed most brilliantly in Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest. So hopefully we'll do that through each point. We'll kind of look at the shadow. 
We'll look through what's going on in Israel and what's going through in all the details of these sacrifices, these offerings, these anointings, and then we'll turn and look at the substance, which is Christ. In order to do that and accomplish that, we need the help of the Spirit. So let's pray one more time. Father, by your Spirit, show us the beauty of your holy mercy revealed in Jesus, our eternal high priest, in your beautiful name. Amen. First, I want to consider fellowship with our holy God requires holy clothing. Fellowship with our holy God requires holy clothing. We'll be looking at all of chapter 28. Now, before we get into the garments, the sacred garments of these priests, we just need to think practically, why does this matter? A football player doesn't walk onto a football field without a helmet, shoulder pads, and the team uniform on. A soccer player doesn't go out onto the pitch without wearing the team kit. A SWAT officer doesn't enter danger in street clothes, but instead in his tactical gear. Likewise, for the priests, those men entrusted with the work of the tabernacle, holy garments were needed to walk on and work in and on holy ground. They had to wear the tabernacle uniform or tactical gear, if you will. Now, these holy garments were made up of royal colors, gold and blue and purple. They were made up of special materials, fine linen, bronze, silver, gold, like we saw in the materials made up of the tabernacle last week. These priest garments were to associate them with the sacred uh, tabernacle. So the uniform was to fit the task. Just like you see a football player, a soccer player on the pitch, just like you see a, a, a soldier, you understand, no, no, your uniform tells me who it is you're associated with and what you do. So too the garments of these priests were to show you who they were and what they were to do. Look down again at chapter 28, verse 1, and we'll see how Yahweh chooses, calls, and equips his servants. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. To bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So notice Yahweh chooses, calls, and equips his servants. These priests, God calls Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons to serve as priests. As the author of Hebrews states, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We'll see more of their meditorial work later. But I want you to notice first that this is not only true of the, the priests, that is the spiritual leaders, but look down at chapter tw uh, 28, verse 2 and 3 and notice what or rather who's required to make the garments that the priests are to wear. Exodus 28, verse 2. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I've filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So in order for the priests to be consecrated or set apart for the work Yahweh called them to, they needed skillful people to make the garments. And if you'll flip over to chapter 31, as we'll see, the rest of the materials in the tabernacle as well. Flip over to chapter 31, verse 1, and we're going to see these skillful craftsmen, these skillful people who are making these clothes that the priests are to wear. The craftsmen, Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I've appointed with him Oliab, the son of of the tribe of Dan. <laughs> and I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded for you. So notice not only are the priests called by name, but also the craftsmen are called by name. That Yahweh provides not only what Israel needed for worship, but who 
Israel needed for worship. The priest and the skillful. What do we learn from this? I just want you to notice God chooses, calls, and equips people with who and what they need for faithful worship. He provides everything and everyone as people need to worship him the way he's called to be worshiped. You need to know God never calls you or commands you to do something he's not provided for. You may not see his provision, but rest assured, if he commanded it, he will provide for it. Even today, he gives gifts to the church so that the church can do all that she's called to do, globally and locally. He gives elders and deacons, people who can do word ministry and deed ministry, pastoral ministry and practical ministry. Also notice when he highlights these skillful and those he's given to his Holy, or he's given his Holy Spirit to make them skillful and to use their skills, this dignifies art. This dignifies practical skills as those given by the Holy Spirit to be used for the glory of God. That means Big Mike, who's the deacon of facilities, is one who God has given gifts and skills by his Spirit to be used for the glory of God. That Phil and Gail, as they do Sunday morning hospitality, are filled with the Spirit of God in order to do this particular work for the glory of God. That Sarah Middleton uses her skills of interior design gifts to help as we renovate the church. Like God gives practical skills and benefits and gifts to his people in order to bring glory to his name. There are no meaningless gifts. All gifts are given by God and then empowered by his spirit to bring glory to his names. Colin, Shaw, and the entire media team. God equips people with skill. And his spirit uses those skills to bring glory to his name and to advance his kingdom. So I ask this morning, are you using the gifts he's given you for his purposes? To bring glory and honor to his name to advance his kingdom. It is beautiful to see our holy and merciful God distribute all kinds of gifts to his people for the sake of his glory. The Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and in Ephesians chapter 4. That our God is a God who distributes particular gifts to his people in order to bring about his purposes. These particular spirit-filled men use their skill for God's glory, starting with making the sacred clothing, clothing of the chosen priests. So let's now look for a second at the priest's sacred garments or at their sacred drip for the younger people among us. <clears throat> Exodus 28 verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, which he'll cover in 15 through 30. An ephod, 6 through 13. A robe, 31 through 35. A coat of checkerwork, verse 39. A turban, verse 36 to 38. And a sash in verse 39. Thus shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fond twine linen. There was to be a glory and a beauty about these priests' garments. Literally a weight or a heaviness and a glory or a beauty to them. Their sacred garments were to associate them with the sacred space of God's presence. And even from this, we just see that worship of our holy and merciful God is weighty and beautiful, not flippant and casual. It's not a simple thing to enter into the presence of God. It's not a silly thing. It's not a small thing. No, no, no. It's an amazing, incredible, powerful, terrifying thing. And so our worship of a holy and merciful God should be weighty and beautiful. Let's quickly consider the significance of each piece of these garments. First, the ephod down in verse 6 to 13. I've got a picture for you from the CSB study Bible to help you visualize what it might have looked like. The ephod was an apron-like covering that was royally colored. We see that in verse 6. On the shoulders were gold-enclosed signets. Look at, down at uh, chapter 28, verse 12 to see the significance of these signets. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. 
This was to be a reminder to Aaron that he served on behalf of the people of Israel and camped all the way around the tent of meeting. He's bearing the weight of all of the people on his shoulders. On this ephod is the next piece of the sacred garment, the breast piece. We see in uh, verse 15 to 30. Now, this breast piece was made up of 12 precious stones arranged in rows of, uh, four rows of three. Each stone, again, engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In this breast piece, there was also the Urim and Thummim. We don't really know much of what these were. P- perhaps it was like dice that the high priest, in, in major moments of crisis, when he would be in the presence of the Lord and was trying to discern, would cast lots. Perhaps it was a, there was a yes and a no one. He would ask questions and use it. We don't, we're not quite sure. Uh, it, they appear elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't use those today, obviously. Instead, we have the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Holy Spirit's leadership of us, and then he places us in a Holy Spirit-filled church with godly counsel. But this is something in the breastpiece of the high priest as he's discerning the will of God for the people of God, bearing their weight on his shoulders. But also, notice most significantly in verse 30, in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Not only is the high priest to wear and bear the burdens of all of the people on his shoulders, but he's to carry them on his heart. Now, I just want you to picture this for a minute. Around this tabernacle, there's 6,000 men plus women and children, well over a million people. And the high priest will enter in and worship and meet with God and mediate between God and man, all million plus people. And he's saying, no, no, I'm bringing all of them on my shoulders and on my heart. I'm bringing them to you, God. All 12 tribes of Israel and tents around the tabernacle. It's as if the priest enters saying, God, here we are, all of your people. I come with your people on my shoulders and on my heart. We're here to meet with you according to your holy mercy. It's also worth noting that in, according to Ezekiel 28 verse 13, these precious stones point us back to Eden, where Adam worked in the garden as a priest worshiping God. They also point us forward to the city to come, as revealed in Revelation 21, 19 to 20, which records the wall of the cities adorned with every kind of jewel, many overlapping with these jewels here, and lists out this similar list. From the fall forward, God is committed to redeeming and returning his people to paradise, where he dwells with them. And again, that's the whole point of all of this, God dwelling with his people. Next, we move to the robe. The ephod sat on top of a blue robe that had pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around its hem with gold bells. The bells were to remind Aaron of the holiness of God and the weightiness of his priestly role. Look at verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. So again, you don't just approach a holy God any old kind of way you want to approach him. These bells were on the hem of his garment. And he would go in and the people, as it were, could be around the tabernacle hearing he's ministering on our behalf. He's going to God on our behalf. We hear the bells. And if the bells stop, perhaps he died before God's holiness. So again, symbolizing the holiness of God. Next, we go to the turban in verse 36 and 38. The turban on top of Aaron's head. On this turban, there was a gold plate that is engraved, holy to the Lord. Set apart, sanctified to the Lord. Look at verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So put the whole picture together now. Aaron is bearing all of Israel on his shoulders, the ephod. His feet, the hem of his 
robe, his heart the breastpiece, and on his head the turban. From head to toe, the high priest is representing Israel to Yahweh. And he also wears a checkered coat of fine linen as an embroidered sash around his waist, verse 39. Now, verse 40 and 41, we find out Aaron's sons must also wear sacred clothing, though far less detailed than the high priest's. But lastly, we got to talk about the fact that they all had to have on particular undergarments. Now, I'm going to talk about this briefly. I'll take just a second for y'all to, yeah, uh-huh. <clears throat> little dad joke for you to keep you awake as we talk about the garments. <clears throat> Let's talk about these, uh, uh, I know, listen, I'm a, I'm a good cheesy dad joke guy, so I had to, I did it accidentally with my wife, and then I was like, oh no, that's making the sermon. <clears throat> All right, the undergarments. All of the priests must be dressed in holy undergarments to interact with the holy God. Why? Because nakedness must be covered before the Lord. Again, this calls us to look back at the Garden of Eden. What happened when our first parents, Adam and Eve, fall? They, they were naked in paradise before and no shame and guilt. When sin and death enters the world, they're naked and they're ashamed. They know before a holy and righteous God, I'm full of shame and guilt and I cannot stand in his presence. With the fall, with sin came the shame that accompanies naked guilt before the Lord. Adam and Eve had to be covered. And so our God, holy and merciful, clothed them. So too, these priests have to be covered before the holiness of God, for they were sinful. Now, you may ask the question, what about their feet? Their feet aren't addressed. Why not? I think it's because in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses stands before God in the burning bush, what does God tell him to do? Take you off your sandals. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. So I think these priests had nothing on their feet because they were standing on holy ground. So fellowship with Yahweh requires the priest to be in holy clothing while mediating for God's people on holy ground to a holy God. That's the shadow. That's the shadow of the priest's garment. What's the substance? What is the substance? Why don't we dress like this today? Why am I not rocking the thing my man Aaron was in that picture? How is this a shadow in the Old Testament revealed and fulfilled in the substance of Christ revealed in the new? Well, first of all, we can just make a few contrasts. Sinful Aaron, again, bore all of Israel on his shoulders, his heart, his feet, and his head. From head to toe, he represented Israel. Sinful Aaron. But righteous Jesus carried the cross of his people on his shoulders. Righteous Jesus invited all of those who were burdened by their law-breaking to come to him, all those who were weary and heavy-laden to come to him, for he was gentle and lowly of heart. Righteous Jesus didn't get a turban on his head, but instead a crown of thorns forced down on his head. Righteous Jesus took nails through his feet and through his hands on the cross. From head to toe, Jesus represents those who look to him in faith. Not only that, sinful Aaron had his nakedness, nakedness mercifully covered. Righteous Jesus was stripped naked, beaten and crucified, in shame, bearing the naked shame of, his, of the sin and death of his people. Why didn't Jesus dress in the beautiful garments of the priests? Because he wasn't sinful. He didn't need sacred clothing to relate to a holy God, for his sacred clothing was his holy righteousness. And do you know what he did with his holy garments of perfect righteousness? What did he do with these beautiful garments? What did Isaiah uh, 61.10 let us know and give us a hint about what he would do with his garments? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. 
What happened to the prodigal son when he repented and ran home to his father? What happened? Luke 15, verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, his shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Do you see what happened to the righteous garments of righteous Jesus? He gives them to those who look to him by faith. You bring to him your soiled garments of sin, and he gives to you the righteous garments of his son. Fellowship with our holy God requires being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Have you received the righteous robe of Christ by faith? Secondly, fellowship with our holy God requires holy priests. So again, let's look at the shadow. Now that God has addressed the sacred clothing required for the priests, he gives instruction on how they're to consecrate or set apart the priests to serve because they're sinful priests representing sinful people to a holy God. Therefore, there must be a formal consecration process that included sacrificial offerings for the priests to minister in God's holy presence without being consumed by his holy wrath. Chapter 29, verse 1 through 9, details preparation for this. Verse 1 through 3, we see that, uh, that, that they're to gather the materials for the sacrifices. They need to get one bull, two rams without blemish, plus unleavened bread, cakes, and wafers made out of wheat flour mixed with oil, and all that's to be brought in a basket. Next, in verse 4 through 9, we find out they're to be cleansed, clothed, and anointed. So Aaron and his sons were brought to the entrance to the tent of the meeting and washed with water. This symbolized the removal of the uncleanness that that resulted from sin. Flip over to chapter 30 again in, in what was the last piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Chapter 30, verse 17 through 20, you'll see the bronze basin, which is put in place for this washing that the priests must have for their uncleanness. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that, again, they may not die. So this bronze basin was the last, again, piece of furniture for the tabernacle. It was placed in the courtyard between the altar of sacrifice and the doorway to the tent of meeting. The priests, because they were sinful, needed continual washing before touching or doing anything holy. You guys remember the early days of COVID when the entire globe was most terrified? Man, could just getting around or touching anything lead to my death? And man, hand sanitizer became booming business in the midst of all of that. It was everywhere. Everybody was giving it away, and it was hand sanitizer stuff everywhere. Why? Because you, want avoid, you wanted to avoid the, the, the seeming wrath of what this, like the unknown. You did not want to die. You need to be clean. You were trying to make sure you didn't get, literally the priests are going before a holy God, and they must be cleansed. They must be washed, else the wrath of God consumed them and killed them. And so this basin is put there. Everything they touch, they've got to wash. If they touch it without being washed, they make it unclean. And so this basin must be there. Then they were to be clothed with the holy garments from our first point, that's verse 5 through 9, and then anointed with oil in verse 7. We're not going to turn there, but again, over in chapter 30, verse 22 to 38, we get specific details about the choice spices that would be to use to make the anointing oil and the incense. And what you find in that section is that everyone and everything had to be anointed. Everything. 
Everything had to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy. If this was going to be holy ground, anything sinners were close to or touching had to be anointed and it had to become holy before the Lord. Now this anointing oil and incense was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So now with these instructions for cleansing and clothing and anointing given, God turns to instructions for the sacrificial offerings. I'm just going to walk through and describe these sacrificial offerings to you. And I want you to, as we think about and go through this, I just want you to think about the amount of blood. There's so much bloodshed as we go through and think about these offerings. The first offering was a sin offering. You see this in verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 to 14, first the bull was to be offered as a sin offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull so as to symbolically transfer their sin to the bull so that blood would be shed for their sin, then kill, the, kill it before the Lord, put some of its blood on the horns of the altar, and then pour out the rest of the blood on the base of the altar. After that, they were to take certain parts uh, and leave them on the altar and the rest of them to burn it outside of the camp. We learn in Leviticus 4, 3 to 12, that this offering was for unintentional sins of the priests. So again, these priests are sinful. So something's got to be done about, if they're going to represent sinful man to a holy God, they're going to do something about their sin first. And this first sin offering is an offering saying, even the priests are going to have sins they don't even know about. Friends, do you know that you have sins you don't know about? That you're more sinful than you realize because you don't see sins that you have? And that, as we've said over and over, God is more holy than you realize, which means that problem is greater problem than you realize? And so these priests had to make this first offering for their unintentional sins. And the fact that, this, uh, that, that they would take this other outside the camp, we'll talk about in just a minute as well. But this also, verse 36 said, purifies the altar and makes atonement for the defilements that occurred when they touched these things because they were unclean. And so you see God's holiness and this requirement for the sacrifice. But do you also see his mercy in letting unclean priests with unintentional sins be consecrated? So God is holy, but also see his mercy. He's letting those who have sinned that don't even know about that sin come and make offerings and be his priests even before and representing the people. The, the second offering is a burnt offering in verses 15 to 18. And this is the first of the two rams that is killed. Its blood is thrown against the sides of the altar, then it's cut into pieces, washed and burned on the altar as a burnt offering, as a pleasing aroma and food offering to the Lord. This offering, according to Leviticus 1, 3 to 13, atones for the sin of the one who offers it. So I'd assume these are the known sins. So we've got an offering for the unknown sins. Now we've got an offering for the known sins of the one who's offering it. And the fact that the entire sacrifice was burned was a sober reminder that sinful man could not approach a holy God without being totally consumed by the fire of his wrath. That if you step to him on your own, you'll be consumed like that offering. And again, as we've said over and over and over in this series, God is more holy and we are more sinful than we realized. The animal must die as a substitute for those who laid their hands on it. Again, note God's mercy. He's coming up with a means to dwell with sinful people. The third offering was the ram of ordination in verses 19 to 28. The second ram, so it's the third offering, but the second ram is offered as a ram of ordination. There's two major distinctions in this offering. First, some of the blood is placed on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the priest before it's thrown on the altar. It's also placed on their clothes along with the anointing oil. 
Now, why would this be the case? In the Old Testament, the, the right hand is the place of honor. So that's the place of honor. We even now, we see Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's a place of honor. It also now is then means blood is covering everything that's exposed from that, that, uh, the, the chief priest's wardrobe that we looked at. So he's to put it on his right ear. He's to hear and listen to God's word. He's to put it on his right thumb. He's to put his hands to work for God. He's to put it on his right big toe. He's to walk with God. He's to represent the people from head to toe. And even his clothing, everything that's exposed, all of the clothing must be covered in blood. Second, the whole ram on this one isn't burned on the altar, but instead certain parts are offered with bread to the Lord. The breast is eaten by the priest because, as Nate mentioned last week, God provides for his people, even those working in the temple. And then we learn in verse 29 to 37, this consecration is repeated every day for seven days and then to be continued by future priests. Again, I ask you, can you imagine how much blood was spilt by the seventh day? Sinners, worship of a holy God has always required sacrificial blood. Fourth offering we see is now for the people in an ongoing sense, not just in the consecration. Verse, chapter 29, verse 38 to 46. A lamb in the morning and a lamb at night. Finally, God gives instructions on offering two lambs. Again, one first thing in the morning, one in the evening. After everything was consecrated, these were the ongoing offerings of fellowship with God. But I want you to notice the point of all of this bloodshed, all of this blood that's poured out and spilled. Notice the point, again, that was just read from you from our sister Cammie, Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. These lambs, the morning and evening ones, shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I'll meet with the people of Israel, and it should be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron, also his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He wants them to hear from him. To meet with him. He means to dwell with his sinful people, but he's a holy God. So he's going to consecrate these priests to be mediators that he might dwell among his people. He is Yahweh there, Elohim. And their meeting place will be sanctified or set apart with his very glory, his presence. And that's the whole point of Exodus, the glory of God. That he's going to rescue and redeem people out of bondage that he might set them apart as his chosen people. And through the world to the nation show this is what it's like when the one true God rescues a people for himself. And transforms them to live this new and holy life and is with them. His presence is there. He redeemed them to dwell with them to cause his glory to rest on them. That's the shadow of what it took for sinful priests to mediate for sinful people before a holy God. What is the substance? The priests and the people were sinful and therefore needed God's mercy to let them make these atoning sacrifices so that God would dwell with them. He consumed the sacrifices so they might not be consumed, but instead enjoy his glorious presence among them. Not only that, the priests eventually died and had to be replaced. And on and on this had to go. Continual sacrifices, new priests, new sacrifices, new priests. Beautiful Jesus was not sinful. Therefore, he needed no sacrifice to be given for him to commune with God. These priests had to give an offering, a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinful. Jesus didn't have to give a sacrifice. He wasn't sinful. He's our eternal high priest who got up from the dead never to have to make another sacrificial offering. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's why they got to keep offering them. So you keep having sins, we got to make more offerings. You got to keep making more offerings, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see this? The eternally holy high priest gave himself, not a bull, not a ram, not a lamb, not a goat, but his very own perfectly righteous life as a sacrifice for your atonement. And do you know where he did this? Did he get to do it in the middle of the city where everybody would see? Mm-mm. Hebrews chapter 13, 10. Where'd you do it, Jesus? Where'd this happen? We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the tabernacle, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Our great high priest's sacrifice consumed by the wrath of God outside the camp to make us clean. The one who was so holy he required blood sacrifice to approach became the blood sacrifice himself. Third, fellowship with our holy God requires holy worship. Fellowship with our holy God requires holy worship. Look at chapter 30 verse 1 to 17. The priests have a little bit more work to do, not just these sacrifices, not just what we've covered to this point, though that was all of their work. There's a little bit more work to do to mediate between our holy God and his sinful people. First, notice in the first 10 verses that the people of God must have holy worship through the intercession of the priests. So there has to be this altar of incense, also made of acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold and two golden rings, so they could be mobile as God moved with his people throughout their wanderings. This altar of incense was to be a holy place with, a, with, a golden, with the golden table and the lampstand. It was directly in front of the curtain to shield the mercy seat. Twice a day, Aaron would burn fragrant incense that was pleasing to the Lord on it. We'll see that in verse 7 and 8. And once a year, he'd have to make atonement on its horns. Now, what's interesting is, unlike the bronze altar inside the gate to the court, which is to be continually bloody from sacrifice, this, this altar was overlaid with gold. So you got one with bronze, got blood all over it. This one's overlaid with gold, with incense on it. And what is this incense? What is this representing to the Lord? It's the prayers of the saints. That the priest would be interceding on behalf of the saints. That this would be their conversation, their communing with the holy God himself. This constantly burning incense was to symbolize the priest's continual intercession on behalf of the people of God. So we read in Psalm 141 too, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We also see in the end in John's Revelation, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp and what? Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the people of God to have holy worship needed continual intercession so that their worship was indeed holy to the Lord. This was crucial to the priest's meditorial work. But also notice in verse 11 and 16, there was a census offering. So there's the, altering, uh, the altar of incense, then there's a census offering. They would be made holy, not just through the intercession of the priest, that their worship would not just be accepted because the priests are interceding on their behalf, but there had to be atonement, a ransom fee paid for them. Yahweh commands a census so that every military-aged man is counted and contributes a ransom fee so that no plague would come upon them and the temple could be funded. Now, this word for ransom or atonement signifies to deliver or redeem by a substitute. Look at chapter 30, verse 14. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more 
and the poor shall not give less than half the shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Notice it doesn't matter who you are, atonement must be made. Ransom and redemption must happen. Rich or poor, you need redemption and ransom from the Lord. So the priestly work makes sure the worship of Israel was holy unto the Lord. They're interceding for them, and atonement ransom fee is being paid. That's the shadow. What's the substance? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, for his own, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Friends, notice and see, Jesus didn't only clothe you with his righteousness and make the sacrifice necessary to save you from the wrath of God. No, he saves to the uttermost from beginning to end. If he started it, he'll keep it. And how is that so? Because he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you even right now. So he doesn't just say, I'll make the sacrifice, I'll forgive you of your sins, and then I'm going to ignore you. No, 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 he saves to the uttermost. I'll make the sacrifice, I'll forgive you your sins, I'll cleanse you, and then I'm going to intercede with you to make sure you get to glory. I'm doing it from beginning to everything about your, the fact you will go to heaven is Jesus. You contribute nothing to it. He does it all. And in that you can rest, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friend, by faith, can you hear it? Christ interceding for you even right now. Interceding for you on your behalf. The people of God need continual intercession. And he's qualified to make that intercession because he is our ransom payment. Again, the, the, the censure would mean we, there had to be a payment. There had to be a ransom paid. What does 1 Peter 1.18 tell us? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold or a shekel, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He can intercede for you because he purchased you not with money but with his own blood. Next, fellowship with our holy God requires Sabbath rest. Look at chapter 31, verse 12 and 13. The Lord said to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, we covered the Sabbath and talked about that when we went through the Ten Commandments. So I'm not going to get into this. It's a very, very brief but what does he say specifically? The Sabbath was to remind them Yahweh made them holy. No work that they did made them holy. And therefore, they were to rest in the creator and redeemer on the Sabbath. But that's the shadow. What's the substance? Fellowship with our holy God requires Sabbath rest. What is the substance? What did our Lord say just before he died? To tell us that it is finished. All of the work necessary to get you to glory, Christ said, I did it all. Everything, as you look at the shadows, as you look upon the whole old covenant, you see that cross shadows. You turn around and look on the cross. You'll see, I did it all. Everything necessary to get you glory, I did it. Your job is come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ Jesus has done it all. 
And he wants his people to know, even in Israel, he wants his people to know now, you contribute nothing to your salvation. Rest in my finished work. Christ Jesus is the one who does it all. He is our rest. Therefore, Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Forever's entered God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. And on the Lord's day, again, no matter where you land on some of those details, you're to be reminded to rest in your creator and redeemer in his finished work. Verse 18 closes out this section. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, again, this is just a shadow. God himself wrote on the tablets. This sets apart the Ten Commandments, even from the case law we looked at a couple of weeks ago. God has revealed what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others as yourself. It's on the, and in these ten words, and then it was applied through the book of the covenant. And this, this ten words is set apart and goes into the Holy of Holies. This is the new life. This is the worship Israel is to give to the Lord as a set apart people. But again, what is the substance? Israel had the ten words written by the finger of God. We have Jesus, the Word made flesh. The Son of God who tabernacled among us and fulfilled the law for us. And so as we conclude this morning, do you see the shadows? And can you turn and look and see their substance? Have your eyes, the eyes of your heart not captured another glimpse of the beauty of God's holy mercy revealed most brilliantly in Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest? That's why we started by singing, nothing is better than you. You turn mourning to dance and you give beauty for ashes. You turn shame to glory. You're the only one who can. That's why we sang it was the blood of Christ. It was his sacrifice. Oh, how beautiful. My Jesus has washed me. That's why we sang Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that's why we'll sing hallelujah to the Lamb of God. There is no greater love than this. The beauty of God's holy mercy is revealed most brilliantly in Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest. Non-Christian friend, if you don't know him, look to him. He's done it all, everything necessary. That's why we're amped up. That's why we're going to worship. That's why we're going to sing. Let's close in prayer.